Hi, welcome to the How to Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I'm so excited to introduce Dr. Mark Ferris. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you, and I know he's busy, and so he's um, got some really exceptional, I guess specialty is what you describe this, as a health and exercise psychologist, and I think this is just so fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this and where you are? I can, sure. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me, and this uh it's a, what a great idea for a podcast, and, and so I appreciate you uh, inviting me to be a part of this today. So in, in short, um, I was going to be a, a coach uh, originally out of undergrad. I did my student teaching and realized um, I don't want to get paid like a dollar an hour you know, for all the time that they spend for what they get paid, but in short, I, I decided that it wasn't for me, and so I tell most people that I was stuck with a kinesiology degree, because to be honest, I didn't know what to do with that, uh, which has benefited me a lot now that I work so much with students uh, trying to figure things out. So long story short, I, the reasonable thing was to go into the fitness industry. And so early on, I was wired more toward athletes. Uh, This brought me from Texas A&M to California uh, Southern California, and I was training at that time uh, an extremely large uh, commercial fitness uh, facility, one of the largest in the world uh, at that time. And so I was working with athletes, and I got into fitness models. Um, long story short, how you know how that happened, but in short, I was training these elite folks. Well, what happened was uh, other women who were not fitness models would come up to me and ask. Hey, I want to look like that. Can you help me? And I was like, well, I, I, I can give it a shot. And so <laughs> that's where I first started learning about the complexities of behavior change. Uh, it didn't take long for me to really lose interest in the athlete fitness model group. I became very quickly more and more interested with the complexities of, of helping these mainly ladies lose weight and control body image issues and uh, look at emotional eating and stress and self-control and how they regulate behavior. And even though they want to, why don't they do it? And uh, um, I don't know. I just, I just became very, very intrigued with that. Uh, I took a job out in Atlanta and after that. And so I was actually dealing with a lot more trainers and becoming frustrated with the disconnect between uh, really a, a I guess, a standard sense of knowledge and prescription. So in other words, one trainer would say this and another trainer would say this. And I was like, well, which one is right? And uh, how are we going to manage this? So I decided at that time, and actually I had a discussion with Dr. Jim Anessi, uh, who was at that time from Rutgers. He is now with the Metro Atlanta YMCA's. And he was a very strong uh, mentor for me to start thinking about the behavioral aspects in a way that I'd never thought about it. For example, uh, in my world of kinesiology and exercise science, it was all about, well, you train with the exact prescription that you need to get to the end goal. And so, for instance, if you want to get strength, then you choose a weight that's 80, 85% of your maximum uh, uh, weight and of your one rep max and do that. But then he would say, well, what if, you, what if they don't like the way that feels and they leave? Like, well, the results they want. So I was really in this weird situation where I couldn't quite um, figure out which way was right or wrong. Long story short, I decided to go back and get my master's degree in exercise physiology. Mm-hmm. That brought me back here to Texas um, and to, to Baylor University. And I had a phenomenal experience there. Well, during that time, I had many mentors, but Dr. Rafer Lutz uh, in particular pulled me under his wing as an exercise and sports psychologist. And so he got me into this world of, hey, maybe again, you should consider the psychological aspects of behavior. Because I quickly learned in my, in my degree that I knew what to tell people. Um, the prescription in my mind was not the difficult part. Yeah, there are specifics, but how in the world do we get people to do that prescription and he was able to, to kind of pull me in and help me understand that. Long story short, you fast forward, I ended up 
meeting Dr. John Bartholomew through Dr. Lutz, uh, who is at the University of Texas at Austin. And so that's where I went for my, my PhD uh, in behavioral health, behavioral medicine world. And I was really able to dedicate under his mentorship um, sort of an upside down upside down way of thinking or just out of the box, like start challenging common thought on how people initiate behavior, how people maintain it. And maybe what are some of the unanswered theoretical questions? What are some of the newer perspectives? Because, you know, and still to this day, I consider this, I really like theory and the theories that we have, but at the same time, are they, are we done? Because if, if we are, then are we not applying those theories correctly? Or perhaps are there new perspectives that just have not been considered yet? Or maybe there's new theories that exist in other fields that need to be applied to health, medicine, physical activity, nutrition. And so that, that time for me was really, really good for me to start considering a wide range of topics and be pushed, especially from the research world. So then that led me to my first faculty job out at a Stephen F. Austin State University in East Texas, which was phenomenal. And uh, for five years there, I really spent a continuation of my research time from my dissertation looking at uh, women, particularly in weight loss and emotions, motivation, and coping, and the emotional process of weight control and how uh, we can lose weight in a number of ways. You know, I always get the question, what's the most efficient lose weight? Um, and I commonly say, don't eat or drink anything until you reach your weight goal. And then they would ask, well, is that healthy? I was like, well, no. Um, could I die? Yes. Uh, but are those goals too, right? Are you wanting to be healthy and lose weight? Are you wanting to survive and lose weight? Are you wanting to be attractive and lose weight? Are you wanting to maintain your, your faith or your, your role in the family? Or, right? And it started getting more and more complex as far as what, what was valued. And why was that valued? And so we started asking questions uh, in the lab. We could bring men and women in and scan them with body composition scans and give them their, res their typical results, their weights or their body composition and say, uh, Ms. Jones, you, are, you weigh this much, your BMI is this, that puts you in the obesity classification. Uh, you have this many pounds of fat on your body, the typical. And we found very quickly that that process is not benign. And it can create an array of emotional responses, uh, an array of uh, motivational responses, and how these women and men were going to cope with that information. And then we found that how many people avoid that sort of information and uh, don't get cancer screenings because I don't want to know if I have cancer. Uh, there was some data to support that if they would go to the doctor and the doctor would say, hey, you need to lose some weight, and they would leave. And between that visit and their next visit, if they didn't lose, they would just change doctors uh, because they didn't want to go back and listen to it. Um, and so it was just a weird balance of, um, again, all these different emotions, motivations, and way that these women in particular were coping with the stress and distress of uh, their weight. Not only their innate kind of nature perspectives on their bodies and fat and body image and um, craving high fat, high sugar food, but also the nurture aspect and societal influences and their family and uh, work uh, emphasis. And so we developed really some new theories of, of this and um, did, a, did a lot of really neat research and looking at brain activity, uh, subconscious brain activity. We did a lot of survey, a lot of qualitative. And that put me to the point where I am now, which is actually putting uh, this perspective into play in a, a much larger scale. So currently I'm the state extension health specialist for Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. And so we, we are the extension agency for the entire state. Uh, and we have several initiatives that are uh, kicking off to try to put this behavioral perspective into practice because as, as most of your listeners probably know, uh, seven, eight, in, in Texas, eight of the 10 leading causes of death are preventable chronic diseases. And so with physical inactivity, poor diet, obesity, and smoking being the four leading factors of those risk factors, uh, we, we're now having to target, like with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, where I serve on the board, we are targeting those particular behaviors as the true causes 
of disease and disability across the U.S. But then we're back at our same problem, right? It's like we know what medicine to prescribe, but how in the world do we get people to take that? And so right now what we're doing is we're preparing to test some novel models uh, at county levels across an entire state uh, to see if we can make larger scale impact using this sort of uh, psychological uh, behavioral perspective as opposed to the typical telling people what to do, but not necessarily helping them with the why and uh, the how. Wow, there's just so much I could unpack from that right now. <laughs> Besides mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, humans are complicated and it's That's, not yeah. a, it's not as simple as writing a prescription because there's even compliance issues with medications. So, yes. it's, it's, and you bring in the whole factor of lifestyle medicine, change what I've eaten for 50 years, change what I've been doing, you know, there's so much that comes with that. Their relationship with the physician, their, I mean, it, it, it goes, it's, it's extremely yeah. <laughs> well, what I what I say as an analogy, real quick, is the um, if it's like giving someone a pill bottle that they have to twist the cap thirty minutes every day just to be able to get take their medicine, and it's not an easy twist. It's so they have to crane; their arms going to be sore the next day. Like, when do I have time to do that? Why in the world would I want to do this? I'm only doing it because you're making me do it. I don't want to twist this cap thirty minutes every day, right. but that's our physical activity prescription. Uh, and so it's a, a big pill to swallow, so to speak, for a lot of our patients. And I, I, I get it. I understand it. It's like parenting almost. At least that's how I've deemed family medicine. Wow. So this is fascinating. So please, can you tell me how you plan on implementing this on a countywide level? I mean, who's going to be the ones implementing it? What is their qualifications? How are they interacting with people? Where are you getting these people? I mean, there's so much there. That's fascinating. It is. It's, it's clearly a cooperative effort. And so we are working on uh, continually building those, those cooperative relationships. So um, the extension agency in Texas and in other states have county extension agents embedded in the counties across that particular state. So we have 254 counties in Texas, uh, and we have um, qualified extension agents uh, with master level degrees that facilitate the education at each of those counties, across each of those counties. And so we are transitioning into more of a health focus because of the chronic disease burden. And with that, we are continually and, and we'll uh, make sure that all of these agents, uh, a lot of them already have health backgrounds and health promotion, health education, public health. Uh, but the ones who who do not, we we are getting our capability, so to speak, uh, improved upon so that we will have a foundation of knowledge and education for the basics. Because again, to reiterate the what, the prescription, seven to 13 fruits and vegetables per day, servings, uh, eat more plants, right? As eat, eat, eat food, whole food, and, uh, mostly plants, not too much, Michael Pollan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's that physical activity, 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity, uh, shooting ideally for 60 minutes a day, a minimum of 5,000 steps per day, ideally 7,500 plus steps per day. If you can get 3,000 of your steps at 100 steps per minute, um, then you could be reaching some fit, like, kind of more physically active exercise type prescriptions. And so that's, we got the what down. And so what we are able to do is our agents are very good at education. I mean, that's what they do. They're, they're, they're in public education, and they're embedded in the counties. They live and breathe that county. They're a part of that county. And so they understand the cultural nuances in Texas. As you know, Lubbock is quite different than Southeast Texas in Orange oh, yeah. uh, or, or down south you know, in Victoria or Corpus Christi or Brownsville. And so uh, across the state... There are different viewpoints, there's different cultures, there are different beliefs. Um, uh, the, the way we speak is different. Um, if you're picking up any Texas from me, that's Southeast Texas. But if we went out to Midland and up in Lubbock area, we would pick up a different Texas accent. And so in, terrain is different. And so the beauty of extension is our agents are embedded and they, they breathe that county and the people there and they're passionate about those people. And so step one for us is equipping them to help facilitate delivery, uh, whatever programmatic efforts that we have. So we have some educational efforts in play, 
uh, we're going to create new ones. We work with our School of Public Health and Dr. Jay Maddock, who is our, uh, he's the Dean of the School of Public Health here at Texas A&M and is an advocate to help us with the evaluation part to make sure that we are uh, doing it in the right way and that we can evaluate our programs in a way that we can improve upon consistently every year. But also in each community and county, there are several other great efforts. We just had our first inaugural uh, Lone Star Lifestyle Medicine meeting, uh, which we brought together some leaders for a think tank across the entire state. Uh, and it was a quite a wonderful meeting. Uh, and it had representation from healthcare practice to education research and even public health, but all wired uh, to prevent, treat, and reverse disease with lifestyle. And so there are other efforts that are going on that we can coordinate with. Um, and so I'll be going to the Food as Medicine Conference out at Midland uh, next okay. week. And um, we will be able to discuss all the great things that they do, which they're doing phenomenal things. Uh, there are school districts across the state that are doing phenomenal things. There are work sites that are doing phenomenal things. There are universities that are doing uh, wonderful things. And so my job is to help build the foundation through extension, but then coordinate with what's already going on, see what gaps we can fill, and then accommodate educational efforts across every level. So in other words, instead of scatter shooting, like in this county, we do a random effort, or in this county, we do a random effort. Could we, using that social ecological model with individual, with interpersonal relationships, the community, institutional level working out, could we go in and do an educational effort at every single level at the same time and accommodate as many people as we can and reaching them the way they need it to be reached? We have efforts in schools. We got programmatic efforts for early childhood. Uh, we have faith-based program that we're going to run. We have uh, work site based. We have community level programs. We have senior living specialists. And so uh, we have the ability to accommodate every one of those levels. It's just a matter, matter of coordinating that and measuring it in a way and evaluating it in a way to where we can see if we're making not only changes at the individual level, but across the county. Wow. So it's, are you using like a social network kind of model? I mean, where you're, you can maybe see those people are here and they had the greatest influence. Are you bringing individual physicians and practices into that as well? We, we will be. That's right. And so part of this uh, Lone Star Lifestyle Medicine meeting is we want to develop the um, models and the, the education and the needs for physicians and healthcare providers. Because you mentioned uh, either right before we started this or right when we started about um, being able to do this in a way that's effective in the time constraints and the billing constraints and the knowledge constraints of healthcare practitioners. And so, right. And so I, I think the team effort is about the only way, you know, years ago, it was all about getting the physician or the, the, the practitioner and making them a, a a psychologist, a physiotherapist, a expert. Is your house caving in? Or are you okay? Yeah, there's a there's a thunderstorm out here. So. Oh no! Okay. I'm in Southern Florida, so yeah. Okay. Well, the it's going to be humid tomorrow, then, huh? Yeah, yeah. a little bit. <laughs> but you so were saying we the, we the, moved the, from that perhaps mm -hmm. to a team effort, and so if the doc doesn't have but 10, 12 minutes, five minutes and they're willing to triage the patient. So some physicians, correct, will take 30 minutes, an hour, 90 minutes with a patient because that's what they believe, that's what they want to do. Others are in a situation where they, they just can't practice that way. And so could all these exercise physiologists that are craving to take on patients and are passionate about taking on patients and helping them with the physical activity prescription, uh, um, with different disease states, for example, or different disabilities, or we already kind of have that model with registered dietitians, but what about wellness coaches uh, and their ability to pick this up, other health psychologists and their ability to pick our county agents who are just sitting there waiting and would love to have a relationship with the local healthcare providers to pass on patients and then work together as a team um, so yeah, we have to balance those things in, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly, I would love to have the team approach, but the reality is coming from, I've worked in various different uh, 
settings. I was in the military. I was in a rural town in Colorado. I've been, you know, I trained at Texas Tech, of course. I've been in a private setting. I guess the constraints are one is the time. You know, they come in, you're rushed to just focus on the medications, make sure they're taking it. Are they, you know, do you go over your labs? And then they have these other complaints and it's really crunch time. We don't have, we're not, we don't have integrated medicine as far as having, you know, just regular mental health counselors available. The cost, there's not enough of them. Um, health coaches would have been a luxury and all the places I were was at, um, you know, so I think there comes a point that it does come back to the physician, you know, somehow being the leader in this movement, because that's where I seen that we've just kind of fallen back. And then we complain about, well, why is this happening in medicine? Why don't we have these resources? Well, we haven't stood up and said, this is what we need. And enough is enough to be the advocate for the patient. But instead of just complaining, you know, physician burnouts at an all time high physician suicide. So, you know, I think we as physicians need to stand up and say, this is what we need to take the best care of our patients and, you know, get away from, uh, just the complaining and the whining and say, absolutely demand it. You know, we don't need this, all this administrative burden, simplify it. Use some of that. I mean, we, when I look at grass, you know, as where physicians numbers have grown ever so slightly over the last 50 years, administration is just like off the charts. And um, yeah, yeah. I mean, so I didn't even know these County extension things existed. So where could a local physician maybe reach out to get help like that? I mean, where, who would they contact? Yeah. All right. So within their state, they would look for the uh, cooperative extension service. So it would be uh, housed most likely in the land grant institution of that state. Um, so land. clearly here, if they're in Texas, they, they can get in contact with me. Okay. Um, and I'll put your so contact like information. If, yeah, please do. Um, but also um, within the, the particular state now, uh, some extension services uh, uh, in a particular state may not have the capacity at this point, uh, but that's another step for us is to uh, take what we're able to do in Texas with the leadership that we have um, and the direction that we have, the vision that we have in this arena and to help other states as well. And so even if there's some providers who are outside Texas, let, you know, feel free to let them uh, get with me because at the same time, I think we can develop some innovative ways, especially with online technology um, that can be and facilitate something uh, when there's nothing. Right. Absolutely. You know, I think that's where online has been so significant as far as sharing a message of what is an actual healthy diet. Like you described, you know, of course I'm a big fan of the plant-based diet. It's what I've been using for like six years, but with patients and had tremendous success. So, yeah. I guess we could get to, you know, so we will provide resources for someone to reach out to maybe get a, more of a team effort to help see what's available in their county. I mean, the physicians may not even know what's available in their county. There may be right. private, you know, church-based, you know, faith-based um, resources. There's tons of different things that they may not be know there. But I'm curious because I read these two papers that you sent to me that you wrote and I was like enthralled. They took me like seriously three hours. I was like copying stuff down oh, and really? thinking. Okay. <laughs> I was like, so like it should have been a textbook and it was condensed to like eight, yeah. four pages or whatever. And, um, but could you give me just a rundown for these folks who haven't read this paper? I mean, there's some amazing stuff here. I really like how you, let's talk about the shorter one first, is the value-based lifestyle medicine. Because I think yeah. that has been key how I've been successful because I've been innately always interested in psychology and mm -hmm. learning people's why. And um, I found that that's a good, great way to parent as well. Um, but what is that? What is value-based lifestyle medicine? And how could someone learn how to do that or begin to understand that process? Yeah, so it is good. You know, it's sort of like, uh, I've noticed this with practitioners as well, sort of like coaches. Uh, you know, they may not know the psychology behind it or the term for it, uh, but because they care about people and they're really trying to help and they build relationships and they love others, they tend to get it and they figure out the, the value-based uh, way of doing what they do, whether it's building, um, you know, adults out of kids or whether it's working with patients and lifestyle change. And so value-based lifestyle medicine is, is just that. It's not just about the prescription. It, it is about the why, uh, the patient's why behind this. Now, evidence-based medicine 
is, is typically looked at with three prongs. You have the evidence, the research part to make sure that we are up to date on, on why we were prescribing particular things from drugs to lifestyle. Um, so there's that. There's also the clinician's experience that provides heavily that sometimes the research hasn't caught up to yet uh, or has been looked at in a particular way, but the clinician just knows because they know. Uh, and that's the second prong. The third prong is the values of the patient. And so what value-based lifestyle medicine is trying to do is to reiterate that third prong, which can easily be dismissed because of the emphasis on evidence, which is, is correct, and the emphasis on this is what I know because I'm the doctor, which is good. And so it's bringing the values of the patient to the forefront. Now, this could be individual values uh, for that particular individual that could or, or may not be consistent with their culture, uh, their upbringing, their, their other general values in life. And how can we incorporate those values into our prescriptions? So, for example, I could have two patients and give them the same physical activity prescription of 30 minutes a day, let's say, or 7,500 steps per day. But the reason why they would do it or how I would relay that information to them would differ because of the values that they hold. And so that means we got to understand what those values are and have some meaningful, um, accessible way to look at their values and then have a some basic knowledge and understanding of how to work around a basic prescription so that it accommodates those particular values that that, that individual patient has. So how do you suggest to either a person, for example, maybe they could even do some initial insight, you know, work on themselves. How do we find what those values are? I mean, is there a tool that we can use somewhere online, some type of survey or questionnaire mm -hmm. so we can, you know, get that tethered down quickly because I know when I have conversations with patients, especially when we start talking about the touchy-feely stuff and values, it can go in a thousand directions. It can go on for an hour, um, which I enjoy, but at the same time, you know, you're, you still have time constraints. Where, where should they start to kind of understand what their values are with, you know, what you're describing? Yeah. So as far as resources, um, there are some things that I've seen over the years, but uh, really nothing that uh, I have come across that's, that, that, makes this very, very simple. I wish it was simpler than it is. And, and maybe I'll invent something and get rich um, that will simplify it down. But you, you mentioned early on in this of how, how complex humans are. And um, I, I, don't, I don't know how much we can simplify. However, what we've been learning, and actually one of my graduate students, uh, Alyssa Abro, is going to be looking for her thesis at this exact topic. And what we have found is that uh, over the past few years, there is some basic categories, so to speak. Um, Susan Faultman and Richard Lazarus did a study in, I think it was 86, 1986, where they were looking at their transactional model of stress and coping, and they looked at measure, uh, marital stress. And they found that there are really two major things at stake. Uh, and so they were appraised that these things are being threatened right now. And that's why I'm stressed. And one of, one of those was self-esteem. And the second was the well-being of the significant other. And so a lot of the marital stress was coming from one of those two things, specifically when they were threatened and or appraised as hey, these things are at stake. And so I read that years ago um, and there really has been little done since then. And so we started looking at how could we, in practice, we were seeing that that's what was happening is uh, things, certain things were at stake. And so for, if I get a uh, pre-diabetes diagnosis, one, if nothing is at stake, then I should have no motivation to fix anything. You know, Charles Carver and Michael Shire's theories of uh, self-regulation and feedback models, there needs to be some perceived discrepancy from a standard to initiate emotional responses and, and motivation to reduce that discrepancy. And so if I told you, if we told a patient that her, her second toe was, you know, half an inch longer than average, you know, she may not care, but if she's a foot model and her career's at jeopardy, 
now all of a sudden she cares. Does that make sense? So that her, her professional career is at stake because of that diagnosis. Or as we were learning with weight loss, you know, um, well, I'll tell you, okay, so we had a weight loss program and we had our clients would come through and I would ask every single one, why did you join? And they would all give their particular reasons. Well, uh, one individual who I knew, she asked her, okay, so why did you join? She said, look, Mark, I know I'm fat. I said, okay, uh, but why did you join? She said, my, look, my husband doesn't cook well. He's a chef, but he cooks good, but bad, if you know what I mean. I said, yeah we drink too much wine. I'm not active. I'm lazy. Uh, she went on and on and on and listed out the reasons she wasn't doing, even though she knew what to do. And so she got done. I said, okay, but why did you join? I love that you're stacking your whys. That's Whoa. it. And so she said, my seven-year-old granddaughter asked me, grandma, why are you so fat? And then she signed up. Now we can't go around to all the grandkids in the world and uh, get them to ask their grandparents particular questions to try to inspire motivation to get healthy. But that organic sort of um, discrepancy that came, but what was at stake with that individual? It was her role as a grandparent. And that was threatened in that particular situation. Now she is motivated and she has since uh, seen great success. And so with quitting smoking, with uh, physical activity and diet and weight loss, more particular, what we've been looking at, we see that there are these particular things that have become at stake. And if you ask, you'll get very simple answers at first. But the classic analogy of peeling back the onion, trying to get to the core, uh, as you continue to ask, you start to see uh, what is meaningful for them. So I'll give you my categories that we, we've seen. Okay. So number one would be sex is what I call it, which would be related to physical attractiveness, uh, body image related goals. You know, we learned that, that women in particular would do crazy things for attractiveness, um, and weight loss. And I don't think that's a big shocker, but, um, like with my blog, fitnesspudding.com, we take on a lot of those myths, you know, can my bones be fat? Um, I'm actually about to post one uh, ping pong for weight loss. And so um, we hear a lot of things that squeeze or suction or whatever, and we we think it's going to work or not. And people will go on crazy fad diets. They will get surgery. They will not eat. They will have disordered eating. They will have um, crazy unhealthy views of themselves. They will attribute that strong motivation of disturbance to other areas of their life. And now they're not a good person because they don't weigh a particular amount, you know, and and it's sad, but it shows us how strong those motivations are. And so, you know, not everybody agrees with me on this and, and that's okay. But one aspect is to avoid that motivation and only target a, a second, uh, stake, which would be survival. Uh, and I agree, some people are inspired by survival, but what we dealt with with college-age women, for example, with prevention was, hey, I need you to lift weights now so you're not osteoporotic when you're 60. And they're like, whatever, if it doesn't help me this weekend, then I may not care. And so the only thing motivating them perhaps was their body image or this category of, of, of sex, so to speak. In marriages, we've seen women that want to be attractive for their for their significant others. And so do I dismiss that and force them to exercise for their health? Or can I use that motivation and teach them how to do it well and healthy and have a healthy perspective of themselves and balance and not let those beliefs get out of control? And so, again, there's this um, different viewpoints on that, but uh, we tend to find what stake, what thing is at stake and utilize that uh, as best we can and direct it to healthy. So sex survival Social status, uh, we have found, is a big motivator, and just keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak. Um, Physical functioning, family, role in the family, professional world, which also could be related to social status, and then spirituality. And we have seen those become uh, stronger and stronger. The uh, spirituality we've been targeting a lot, uh, me personally and my current research efforts, and uh, is very meaningful to me. Uh, but from a public health standpoint, there 
are a lot of people that make a lot of decisions, do's and don'ts because of their faith. And rightfully so. Personally, I don't lie because of that. Uh, I don't cheat on my wife because of those. So why can't I eat healthy because of those and take care of this body that I've been blessed with? And there are a lot of people that share similar beliefs. Uh, Some do it for environmental values. uh, And they're eating healthy because they want to, they believe that such actions will help the environment. But it's based on a value that they have. And if we can't assess what those values are, then it's going to be very hard and difficult to make the prescription relevant to that person or to understand why patient X comes in and I give them an obesity diagnosis and and suggest and prescribe weight loss, physical activity, and a plant-based diet for their health and they don't change because health may not be their motivator right now. Something else might be at stake. And if I miss that or don't bring that up, uh, then I may have missed an opportunity. So we're going to be working toward a quick measure to give to patients to help identify what their common motivators would be, their common values would be, so that the practitioner could then very quickly, within just a couple minutes span, speak to those particular values that they have. I think you're right on track. Um, I'll tell you the one question that I found to be the most helpful is if because of your diabetes or because of whatever their physical ailments, I was like, what are you missing out in life that you really want to? I mean, in 10 years, what are you going to regret that you weren't able to do because of this chronic disease or whatever it is, the diagnosis? Um, And that seems to really get to the why, the multiple layered why a little more quickly, um, because a lot of times they'll bring up tears. There's an emotional response. And I know when I hit that emotional response, those triggers and listening for those triggers, you know, you can take a lesson from marketing. How, How do you get people to buy things? You listen for those hot topics, those words that they're constantly using, you know, I'm too fat. My, my pants are too tight. My husband doesn't find me attractive. Those, you know, okay, attractiveness is going to be the case. And like, well, let's build some confidence there and speak um, positive words, right? Those positive Mm -hmm. reinforcement words of um, you're going to feel attractive to yourself so you can go in and in confidence and and share that with your daughter who may also have these same self-body images, you know? So those are the things, you know, just reframing it. Um, But I I think, I think you're right on track. I think I'm, I'm really excited to see what you guys come up with, with her research and everything. That's right. And um, I think you're right on as well with um, here's the difficult part is odds are if you do tap into the why there will be an emotional response. And, and, and as we've seen in those articles and what we do know and what we've even found is that, certain emotions are going to be tied to less motivation. And so if they're despondent or depressed or sad, uh, the odds are when they leave the office, they're not going to do much, if anything. And so I can't let them leave unless they're in some emotional state that is going to be productive for motivation. Theoretically, um, you have frustration and anger, even though they're negative emotions tend to be tied generally higher levels of effort and motivation, then we can just steer them in the right direction. Eagerness is awesome um, when it comes to to motivation. If they get real, real happy, they might coast and kind of pull back. I lost my 10 pounds. I'm going to go have margaritas and and kind of fall off the wagon. Short follow-up cures that. (laughs) Short follow-up. That's right. But also it taps into how do we view the situation? A colleague and good friend of mine, Dr. Eric Janagi, um, who, who I would also recommend for everybody to get in contact with. When you talked about um, physician burnout and suicide, he has taken a model working with elite athletes, um, a psychological model, and now is applying it to physicians and healthcare providers. From hand, Yeah, it's completely novel. It's incredible. Um, and so you need to get him on actually to, to this pod. I'll connect you to Please, that would be amazing. Yes, he can take on the challenges that we have when a patient is upset. How do they, what paradigm do they view this from? Is this a challenge? Is this a threat? Um, Is is this being viewed in more of a mindful way uh, where I'm non-judgmental or am I attributing this situation to me and, and my shortcomings? Am I experiencing shame or am I experiencing guilt? Uh, and what are the potential effects of either one of those? So 
that's where it gets even more complex is when you do have particular emotional responses that are tied to either more or less motivation. But then the attribution, you know, where are those feelings being attributed to? Is it I'm feeling bad because you, the doctor, made me feel bad? Or is it because, yeah, I'm a bad person? And how we navigate and the paradigm and the lens that we see that entire experience from, even something seemingly benign as a, uh, again, an overweight diagnosis or pre-diabetes diagnosis, it can become so routine for the practitioner that we lose sight of the milieu of psychological responses in that particular patient. Uh, and that would be, you brought that up kind of roundabout way, but I just want to emphasize that it's important. You're, you're exactly right. And I've, I've always uh, made a point of ending every appointment, if possible, um, for the most part they are, with giving hope. Because I think hope is the one thing that we miss. Uh, we, we don't understand that it's very powerful. So I like to get the patient to see that there is the need and they have that emotional response. And then I'm able to bridge it to well, there's these lifestyle medicine prescriptions I can provide for you. And then determine what, you know, and you also write about capacity and what they're able to do and say, okay, what can you do? You know, make it a little challenging, but not so easy that they just like, oh, I could do it tomorrow or whatever. Um, and then make it, I always make them feel accountable to me as a practitioner saying, you know, I'm here investing my time and effort in talking to you about this because I care about your health. I said, you should care about your health more than I do. So what is it that we can do to make that a point? And I've even made pinky promises with patients. I'm telling you, I've even, I seriously have done this in the patient room with adults. <laughs> and um, I think that's, that speaks volumes of, of what we need to learn to do as practitioners. It's just this human connection and, um, and sharing, you know, the, the journey together. And you're right. Yeah. It just, we just become so used to, here's your prescription, get out the door. I just need your numbers to be where they need to be. So I meet my metrics to know this is a relationship. These people are coming to you because you're, you're maybe the one person that they speak to all day and you could change their well, lives. And you know? my you're exactly right. Yeah. yeah. I didn't say that by the way. Um, no, my iPhone went off. I don't even yeah. know why I did that. <laughs> I didn't want the listeners <laughs> to think that I was talking about how amazing I am. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh, um, gosh. so, you know, that brings up another good point too, is that um, one what would motivate a practitioner to even do that? You know what I mean? Like you do it and there are many others that do it. And a lot of people probably listening to this are, are like, you know, they're, they're buying in because they, they believe it. But what about all the other practitioners that are caught up in that um, kind of daily grind and that system? And we need to help them find their passion again, you know, in the med school, uh, typically third year, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the students during their clinicals tend to lose empathy uh, very drastically. And so it starts there. So maybe we need to start an undergrad education and medical education. That's why I love the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Have you been, you've been to the conference? Yeah, yes, actually. And I'm taking their certification in October. Um, All right, good. In so I'll see you in Tucson then. Oh, perfect. Uh, is you get around that many people who are that passionate. It's very, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. And uh, I highly recommend everybody going, if purely for that, not the knowledge that you would gain, but just to be around like-minded people. Well, I think we have avenues to encourage physicians to maybe find that their own why and why they even got into this in the first place. And clearly some get into it for the money and to have a second or third house. And that is what it is. But I think a lot uh, got into it for the same reason that you're doing it now. They just need to reconnect. And I think we can have initiatives to help them reconnect. And like Dr. Janegi, who I mentioned earlier, he's helping practitioners do that. But you know, a second thing it brings up too is hope. I agree. And ten, it, it, basic human nature, we tend to be motivated by either fear or hope. And that's the way infomercials work as well. And so um, how do we inspire the hope? But then here's the other catch. So let's say I give them hope with an exercise prescription okay, or, or fruit and vegetables. But then I tell them, you know, I give them the prescription and not the roadmap, so to speak, of how to engage that and how to view that and how to ease into that. And they go exercise one day and they're sore. And all of a sudden they take that soreness as physical debility. And now I've eliminated all hope or a lot of it because of the way they feel or they're interpreting that exercise, which they haven't done in the years, if, if ever. And so how do you 
prescribe it and give hope, but then at the same time, prescribe it in a particular way that maintains confidence, that maintains their outcome expectations, their belief that they can do it, uh, their attitude about the behavior. Uh, I mean, outcome expectations are highly influenced by past failures or successes. And people will say all the time, well, I've tried to lose weight 10 times before and I've failed each time, but at the same time, you've actually succeeded nine times. Uh, so we just have to figure out ways to help maintain the success that you've already had. So quit viewing it as a failure and, and reframing, as you mentioned earlier, in a way that's going to be productive. Uh, Dr. Janagi and I are actually working on a, a process to ease this called Eat, Move, React. And we're, we're developing an app uh, that practitioners can just give to the uh, patients where it assesses their confidence all these psychological things that we know in the evidence predict behavioral adoption. And it produces a very, very simple report that the physician can glance at and see the one, two, maybe three things that they're deficient. Let's say confidence. So let's say they are um, 20 out of 100% confident. They could get 30 minutes of physical activity five days a week next week. Well, then it would be wrong for that physician to say your prescription is 150 minutes because they don't have any confidence. It's not going to work. But that physician could then spend just a minute or two saying, well, what would you be confident? Would it be three days a week for 15 minutes? Oh, yeah, you know, that's a 80% out of 100. Well, then that's your prescription, and I'll see you in a few weeks, and we'll check in how that goes. So it, it's going to help with maintaining hope via the prescription, which is dictated by some of these basic, basic psychological behavioral pr principles that every practitioner should know. That's fascinating. I, I did work comp for a little bit and we used something similar to measure how the patient was doing emotionally, physically, as far as their um, healing process and their injury. Mm -hmm. And it worked really well because it took the subjective component out of me trying to figure out what this patient's doing right, yeah. and made it very objective. And the patient was telling me, and then, and I use that also like, you're telling me this is what you can do. <laughs> yeah. And then if there, if there's some discrepancy there or you know, incongruency there, we can talk about it. So I thought it was a very powerful tool. And I think that's amazing. So you would just like have it on a tablet in their office and they would just give it to them and say, Hey, here's this. Yeah. In the wait, in the waiting room. That's right. Oh, wow. Or maybe even, even a patient portal, they could email it to them and say, have this done before your appointment. That's it. You bet. Oh, you. wow. That's incredible. Yeah, it'd be, it would simplify things down a lot and it would really help take the load off the practitioner, which it's like you said, time is a huge barrier. And knowledge is a huge barrier. Um, you know, I don't know how to handle b behavioral beliefs or subjective norms or self-determined versus other determined motivations or all the things that we know are so crucial. How do I build autonomy? How do I build self-efficacy? What is vicarious experience mm -hmm. uh, or mastery experience? There's a lot of concepts, again, that are uh, clearly linked to behavioral adoption, but, you know, we don't. Unfortunately, we don't get that in med school and we don't get that capacity. And so we have to, that's a part of my job is to help build that. Um, and so we have some other efforts that will hopefully become an app to help build that knowledge. Uh, stay tuned. There, uh, I have a website that will come out um, hopefully in the fall. It's called changemaintain.com. And it's just going to be a continuing education site. And so you just go there and get all of this continuing education and we'll clearly we'll work towards CME to make it reasonable. Uh, again, you got to tap into the motivation to do it besides just the want to It'd be nice to get those credits. And so, yeah, any clever ways that we can come up with to build the capacity of the practitioner subsequently, which is going to help patient behavioral adoption. I think you're exactly right on because I've had multiple physicians. So as I've come across, um, you know, on social media, I'm pretty active. There are multiple doctors reaching out to me weekly now. Um, how do you yeah. do this? I want to do this. Um, it would just be so much more rewarding than doing my regular job, you know? So yeah. um, I think you're definitely tapping into a niche that's going to, that will be very friendly to it and exciting. Well, and, and you are too. And it, yeah. all it does is reiterate that mm -hmm. um, the work that you're doing and others that there is, there are a lot of people craving this. Mm -hmm. um, and would love to get to a, a model. And so what are their barriers and um, how can we help them transition from their current practice model to one that does get them back to where probably, again, where they originally started uh, this journey 
And I have personally seen, as you have too, the fulfillment in those who have made this transition. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a beautiful thing to see. Yeah, I, I tell people, you know, it's it's a dopamine high to help people. And you just continually, and now that if you can help the helpers, you know, help the physicians, yeah, I've seen, right. I, and since my daughter started medical school and my, I have three children and my youngest wants to start medical school, he starts college next week um, or next few weeks. I'm even more concerned and motivated because these kids are going to be entering a, a whole different world with more time constraints, yeah. less money, more chronic disease. We, we got to set some tools in place. And I, I love this. I, boy, I could keep talking for you forever. Um, I really appreciate your time. We've already, it's already 50 minutes in. <laughs> um, well, I, sure. I, I All right, know well, you, you better time. get to your questions then. Yeah. Well, no, I know you have, t- you're, you're short on time and, uh, maybe we could set up a second interview. That would be really amazing. You. Cool. And then, um, but you know, I always like to end the podcast with acknowledgement and saying, thank you for everything that you've done. Cause I'm going to cut it short here in a second because I want to get Dr. Janagi's. I'm assuming it's PhD, Dr. Janagi, or his MD. That's correct. Okay, cool. That's correct. Cool. Because I want to get his information. I know you have a meeting. So, um, but just acknowledge it and say thank you for everything you're doing. I mean, this is this is fascinating. I think it's just a an important part of making our human existence better and just healing. And oh, there's just this is some really good stuff here. I really appreciate you so much. Thank you. Well, I sure appreciate it too, Laura. And uh, I look forward to coming back for the next visit. Cool. Very cool. And uh, thanks again, everyone, for listening.